Please stand with me as we read today's passage, Colossians chapter 3, 18 through 21. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Please be seated. Let me pray. Father, we pray today that as we open your word, it will have an impact on our life. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Colossians looks at the doctrine of Christ. He is preeminent. He is number one. He is before all things. He reconciles us to God through the cross. In Colossians, Paul discusses the doctrinal errors of the Gnostics and the legalists. He talks about the deity of Christ. He talks about putting off and putting on. This morning we will see what Paul says about the family. Paul has just talked about the new self and, again, putting off the sin and putting on righteousness. And here he talks about the new nature of these family relationships. Number one, husbands and wives, 18 and 19. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. The Christian home. It should be different than it was when you didn't know Christ. And so if you were once married as a non-believer and you yelled and you swore at each other, you might have lived separate lives. Now you work at what God intended, and that is to be one flesh. You don't sit in bars or casinos. You think and act godly. If you want to live as Christians within the home and experience all the fullness God intended for you, then you need to obey. You obey obey these instructions about marriage. Marriage is looked down upon in our society. The Pew Research Foundation did a survey among adults 18 to 44. 59% have lived with an unmarried partner. 50% have never been married. 69% of Americans say cohabitation is acceptable, even if a couple isn't planning on getting married. A seven-year-old girl who had just seen the movie Cinderella was testing her neighbor's knowledge on the movie. The neighbor was anxious to impress the little girl and said, Oh, I know what happens in the end. What? asked the little girl. Cinderella and the prince live happily ever after. To which the little girl said, Oh, no, they didn't. They got married. William Congreve said, Every man plays the fool once in his life, but to marry is playing the fool all your life. I I don't feel that way. Do you? I've been married 35 plus years. 
We've had our ups and downs, but it gets better every year. With submission to God and hard work and dying to self, it gets better. Verse 18. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands. Is that a bad thing? Feminists think so. Liberals think so. Is it chauvinistic? Is it cultural? No. 1 Corinthians 11.3 Christ is the head of every man and man is the head of a woman. And the word there in the Greek is kephala. And the question comes up, does that mean source or does it mean authority over? And it's important to note that all the articles that support source depend on two examples from ancient history. Both 400 years before Christ. And one is particularly weak. A new search by Wayne Grudem of examples of kephala produced no convincing examples where kephala meant source. The evidence to support kephala as authority over is very strong. All the major lexicons with the word studies that specialize in, new, in the New Testament period give this meaning. None to source. The determining factor is always context. And authority over best suits many New Testament texts. Ephesians 1.22 Head is a metaphor for Christ's authority over all things. Colossians 2.10 Christ is the, is the greater authority over all other authorities in the universe. Ephesians 5.23-24 Christ is the head of the church. As Christ has authority over the church, a man has authority over the woman. So the wife must submit to the husband. Women in the ancient world were treated harshly, even in Israel. William Barclay wrote this. Under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was the possession of her husband just as much as a house or the flocks he tended or his material goods. She had no legal right whatever. For instance, under Jewish law, a husband could divorce his wife for any cause, while a wife had no rights whatever in the initiation of divorce. In Greek society, a respectable woman lived a life of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go marketing. She lived in the women's apartments and did not join her menfolk even for meals. From her, from, from her there was demanded a complete servitude and chastity, but her husband could go out as much as he chose and could enter into as many relationships outside of marriage as he liked, and it incurred no stigma. Both under Jewish and under Greek laws and custom, all the privileges belong to the husband and all the duties belong to the wife. Here in Colossae, the wives are addressed equally with the husbands. That was radical. You really can't read these verses apart from verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. 
Whatever you do in marriage, in parenting, the husband and the wife are both under the lordship of Jesus Christ as equals. That elevated the position of women. While that is true, there is still a definite hierarchy. The wife has a definite function within the relationship. Equality and submissiveness can coexist in human relationships. As is fitting in the Lord, it says. I mean, that's our duty. And if God designed it this way, it's not a burden, but the best thing for the woman, the wife, and the relationship. Verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Here's a commandment to the men, just as strong. No one has found any such commands in extra-biblical literature of the time. Agape love involves non-stop care and service for your helpmate. Ephesians chapter 5, 25-33 indicates it's an imitation. That love we have for our wives is an imitation of Christ's love for the church. Who loved us while we were yet sinners. This is a high calling, which to be honest seems impossible. But with God, nothing's impossible. Um, my father-in-law, who's been gone about 18 years, Don Weber... Uh, was a difficult guy at times. He did not want his daughter to marry a preacher. And so he was rude to me at times and seemed to want to get rid of me. Eventually we became friends. But he and Sylvia, he was not a Christian. Sylvia, my mother-in-law, was a Christian for a long time. And he, he just hardly spoke to her. And because of her love for Christ, she stayed in the marriage. Then he got, um, six years before he passed, he got lung cancer. And he was in the hospital, and she was the one taking him there and bringing him back. And, and um, when, he was, when she was bringing him back home, he looked at her and he said, You know I wouldn't have done this for you. And he said, Can you ever forgive me? And took her hand. And for those next year, six years, those last six years, they had a wonderful marriage. You know, it was that agape love that drew him to Christ just before he died. Just before he died. Couples routinely say at the altar, in sickness or in health, but later leave for lesser unbiblical reasons. Dr. Robert Sizer, in his book, Moral Lessons, notes in The Art of Surgery, tells of performing surgery to remove a tumor in which it was necessary to sever a facial nerve, leaving a young woman's mouth permanently twisted in palsy. He said her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they? I ask myself, he, he and his, this wiry mouth I have made who gaze at each other so generously, so greedily. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? 
she asks. Yes, I say, it, it will be. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it. I like it. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is, and I understand, and I lower my gaze. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I, so close, can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show that their kiss still works. Agape love. Agape love. It's possible to love your spouse as your own body. Let me give you one more example. Robert Robertson McQuilkin, the beloved former president of Columbia Bible College, and his wife Muriel, who suffered from the advanced ravages of Alzheimer's disease. In March 1990, Dr. McQuilkin announced his resignation in a letter with these words. My dear wife Muriel has been failing in failing mental health for about eight years. So far, I have been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at the college. But recently, it's become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she's with me and almost none of the time I'm away from her. It's not discontent. She's filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and she always goes in search of me when I leave home. Then she may be full of anger when she cannot get to me. So it's clear to me that she needs me now full time. Perhaps it would help you to understand if I shared with you what I shared at the time of the announcement of my resignation in chapel. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity had something to do with it, but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her the next 40 years, I would not be out of debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit that I relish so, her happy spirit and, and tough resilience in the face of continual distressing frustration. I do, I do not have to care for her. I get to. I get to. It's a high honor to care for such a wonderful person. Agape love. That is loving your wife. You love her actively, as Stuart Scott says in The Exemplary Husband, not just with your words, but with your deeds. Not just reminding her what you did in the past, but something new today. You do the dishes, you do the diapers, you, you're dying to self, you listen. You turn off the TV and you listen. And that goes for wives too. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Love your wives in an understanding way. That means loving them according to knowledge. You must be considerate. Understanding. 
Be sensitive and, and consider your wife's deepest physical and emotional needs as the weaker vessel physically and show her honor as a fellow heir in the grace of life. You share with your wife this gift of life and the wonderful institution of marriage. You have an intimate relationship with someone you need to cherish and nurture. It says, do not be embittered. Don't be harsh. Don't irritate them. Don't exasperate them. The husband is to seek to please her and the wife, the husband. Let me ask you this. In marriage, do you bring up the past? Stop it. Stop it. You're killing your marriage if you do that. In June 1986, the issue of Psychology Today, they had an article, Marriage Marriages Made to Last. They surveyed several hundred happy couples. The interviews were conducted privately with each spouse alone. And the two things they said kept the marriage going. Number one, my spouse is my best friend. Number two, I like my spouse as a person. They spend time together. The Harvard Business Review says 65% of executives' time should be spent listening. Much more so in our most intimate relationships. Proverbs 18.13 He who answers before listening, that is his folly and his shame. The wife is called to submit as to the Lord. The husband to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Submission and sacrifice. And then that verse, uh, Ephesians 5.21, mutual submission. The husband, though, is still the kephala. He's still the head. But I think Ephesians 5.21 reinforces the need for humility by both husband and wife. And men, don't lord it over your wives, that headship. And wives, don't try to control your husbands. The best indication that you understand this as a husband is when you acquiesce to her decisions. You know, to her ideas. You accept her plan for discipline. Or how to handle a school situation. Or you actually take directions. Right, guys? When we go on a trip, we usually say, we don't need no stinking directions. And then we get lost. And we have to turn to our wife. Only God is never wrong. Only God is never wrong. Admitting failure and asking forgiveness go a long way to knitting hearts together. In Christ, you have a new relationship. A new and better marriage. Self is replaced with one flesh, focusing on the other's needs. For the wife, submission replaces independence. And a pursuit of personal goals for how you can serve your husband. Husbands ask, you know, how can I serve? How can I sacrifice as I lead my wife? Marriage in Christ is different. It becomes a new relationship. Your goals are different than they were before Christ. 
your purpose, your priorities. You have to take your eyes off self and you put them on God and your spouse and your children. Number two, children and fathers, 20 and 21. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. (coughs) Being a dad is an incredible challenge. It's right up there with being a husband, to be a godly dad. Christian kids face a great challenge in the world today, full of poor role models. Other kids, their peers, show no respect to their parents. Dads often aren't good examples. TV shows constantly belittle parents and and make it seem as if kids would be much better left on their own. But the onus is on us. The onus is on us, dads. The dad is the leader, and he has to do more than put a roof over his family's head. Verse 20. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. The first thing we realize from Scripture and experiences, experiences is that discipline is necessary. Carl Zuckmaker Uh, A German writer wrote this. If one has lived in America and seen in countless cases what injustice is done to children, one has enough of it. One sees too much that someone hidden, that someone hidden behind misunderstood psychoanalytical maxims allows them to become little tyrants and ill-humored despots. Despots whom adults crawl in front of for pure convenience only to get peace. And one sees how, it, how this takes effect in unfortunate adolescence when they, brought up without authority, are confronted with the difficulties of life. In other words, if you don't discipline just to keep the peace, your kids will reap the negative consequences of that. And how right they are. Hebrews 12, 7, and one evidence of being a child of God is God's discipline. So it is with human fathers. It says this, for what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Kent Hughes adds, The absence of discipline means fatherhood is not being practiced. And weak, inconsistent discipline shows a lack of love. Discipline, says Hughes, is therefore a key to raising obedient children. They are to obey. That's an imperative. That's a command. Continual obedience. Remember what it says in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 verse 12, what are we to do to parents? Honor our parents. 
But 2 Timothy 3.2 says, In the last days, difficult times will come, characterized by people being disobedient to parents and ungrateful. Hupakuate. To listen under. And you'll say to your kids, are you listening to me? Do you hear me? Are, and are you doing it? The little boy was told by his teacher, you go sit in the corner. I don't know how many of you had that happen when you were in school. That happened to me a couple of times. But he was told to sit in the corner. As he sat there, he was thinking, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. The scriptures call for heart obedience to the parents in everything. Unless it goes against your conscience or scripture. When you tell your kids they need to go to church, they need to go to church. When, when you tell your kids they need to get their hair cut, they need to get their hair cut. To dress modestly. Um, that you can't hang out with certain people. You need to listen. And they might say, well, hey, old man, I'll do what I want. You can't have that attitude and please God. My kids are 31, 29, and 25. I can no longer tell them what to do, unfortunately. I would like to. But uh, I come alongside of them as an advisor when they let me do that. My son Mason... Always calling me for advice. Catherine, sometimes. Mark, almost never. Now, if parents were to tell their kids, and I've heard of this before, kids, uh, you know, hey, somebody's calling me, tell them I'm not here. In other words, lie for me. You, you, if your kids refuse to do that, you can't punish them. And shame on you if you do. Shame on you if you tell them to lie. Verse 21, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Don't punish them harshly. Make sure the punishment fits the crime. Don't discourage them. You know, if they won't lie for you and and you would punish them, that would be discouraging them. In general, don't be too hard on them. If they've earned some freedom, give it. One writer said that there are two ways to break a horse. One is with progressive use of a halter and bit and blanket and saddle. Done correctly, this can produce a full-spirited, obedient horse. The second, sometimes used with a difficult horse. You use a two-by-four and you knock the horse to its knees. A horse can be tamed this way, they say, but at great cost. You have a spiritless animal. And an animal that, though obedient, will never be what it could have been. There are kids like this. Their spirits have been broken. They're obedient, but something's missing. And they can't wait to get away from you and rebel against the standards you so cruelly enforced. It says that they may not lose heart. They might, they might withdraw. They might keep it all inside or rebel when they're old enough. 
and the results will be painful either way. Don't nag them to death. Don't put them down. Don't go too far with discipline. Um, your kid accidentally spills the milk. I remember when Mark was little, maybe three years old, and accidentally spilled the milk all over the table. And I lost it. I was wrong. I had to apologize for that. But if you tell your kid, hey, look, you keep messing around, you keep trying to punch your brother at the table, um, and you knock that milk over, you're in trouble. And if they do it, they don't listen. You've warned them, then you need to punish them. And here's the thing to remember. While the Bible is very clear about spanking, you know, in Proverbs, you, you need to do that under control, not in anger, not taking it too far. But while you do that, you show much grace, much mercy. When I would spank my kids when they were little, I think we did it up to maybe 12 years old. Um, when I would do that, then I'd go back in and I'd tell them why. I'd make sure they understood why. I would hug them and remind them how much I love them. Show much grace and mercy. Forgive them and move on like God does with us. You who are in Christ have new relationships because you've put on the new self. You have a new focus. The Spirit of God is within you. So live that out. What did we learn today? You are a new creature in Christ. You are no longer a slave to sin, but now a slave to righteousness. And so you've put off sin. Sin no longer needs to dominate you. You've put on holiness or righteousness. You're a slave to righteousness now. You have a new way to look at things, and that... That will affect your speech and your behavior. You will be a better husband and you will get involved in your children's lives. I knew my dad loved me. Never said it. But until he was older, had a stroke, and then he started to tell us. But um, he never missed a baseball game. When I was a junior, I was the leadoff hitter on the team. And I, if we were at a away game, I'd always be looking around to see if he was there. And, hadn't, and when I got up to bat at first, I'd look back, and there he was. He'd always be there. And, um, you know, and he was also a guy I couldn't talk to. I couldn't go to him about hard things. Um, I appreciate the fact that I inherited a great work ethic from him. But uh, he and my mom fought all the time, yelled, and, and uh, I grew up thinking, I'm going to be a better husband and father than he was. And when I became a Christian, God equipped me to do just that, as he's equipped you. When you become a Christian, you begin to love in a deeper, more sacrificial way. And that has to affect your marriage and the way you parent. How do we apply it? You have to die to self. You have to die to self. When you become a Christian, self no longer rules your life. I mean, it, it certainly tries to, right? Flip 
Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So you listen to your wife. You listen to your kids. Uh, Don't be afraid to talk about hard things. Don't be afraid to confront. I tried, I think, to talk about my, to talk about something difficult with my dad once. When I was in seventh grade, I was walking home and somebody told me about the birds and the bees. And it wasn't correct. I didn't know that. But I went to my dad and I said, Dad, I, I want to talk to you. I want to, I want to, I have a question. I could see the look on his face, how he knew what was coming. And I told him what I knew or what I'd been told, and it was wrong. And he, I said, is that right? And he said, yes. Later I found out the truth, and I went, I'm never going back to him. If he doesn't understand, I don't know how I'm here if he doesn't understand that. But don't be afraid to discipline. Don't be afraid to talk to your kids about difficult things. They want to hear from you. They want to hear from you. Discipline, but always be gracious and kind when you do. I mean, that's the kind of husband and father God expects us to be. And through the anointing of the Spirit and the Word of God and the mentoring of godly men, we have all we need to accomplish that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you that um, your Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and guides us into how to be better husbands and wives and fathers and, and friends. We just thank you for your word. We just thank you that it, it, it shows us what you've created us to be. Help us to continually to dig in and listen and treat others the way you've treated us with such kindness and grace. Amen.